Hey y'all, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. I'm the show's host and producer, Mike Joseph. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the show, I kindly ask that you smash the subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please don't hesitate to rate, comment, and recommend. If you have someone in your life that could get something out of the conversations we're having here, tell them about the show. Also, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph, that is T I S Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out if you know someone who might be interested in being interviewed on the show or if you have any other ideas or constructive criticism. Most importantly, I thank you very much for listening. Stay well. Aki Burmese is a Brooklyn-based singer, songwriter, and instrumentalist who performs solo and also with the band Lake Street Dive. Uh, Aki was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He and I went to the same high school, although uh, several years apart, and uh, we have a lot in common. One thing we don't have in common is that he has a shit ton of musical talent and I have none. Anyway, we get to talking about all sorts of stuff in this episode from his proud status as a nerd, uh, loving science fiction and engineering and computer science, um, to being raised with parents who were steeped in black academia and how that informed his worldview, world view, I'm sorry, uh, to his stint at Bard College and the culture shock involved with that, to what it is like jumping into the fray with an already famous band and having to learn their entire catalog in a matter of days or weeks, I'm not sure which of the two it was. Anyway, Aki and I are all over the place, but it's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy him. Here we go. Well, my name is Aki Burmese, a musician, songwriter, uh, singer, sometimes raconteur. I play music in New York City, Brooklyn, born and raised. I also spent a lot of time sort of working as a backup singer, sideman, and various bands and combos, uh, but of late have found a, a permanent place for myself in a band called Lake Street Dive. And so that's what I do most of the time uh, when I'm not at home writing songs about uh, aliens, falling in love with humans, and what else is there to know about me? Writing songs about aliens. You write songs about aliens, that's right. We can get into that, but it just happens to be where my brand of nerdy manifested. I appreciate that. In music, you know what I mean? I appreciate that. So... One funny thing is when we met initially, I guess yes. maybe a year and a half or two years ago, there was an immediate familiarity vibe. Yeah. And the blurred lights went on right away. <laughs> yes. And I think even before that, some of our friends in common were like, yo, you and Aki should know each other. Y'all are very similar. And we both grew up in Brooklyn. Yes. Yes. We graduated from the same high school. That is correct. That is so, correct. Brooklyn Tech. Yes, Brooklyn Tech is in the house. So we have officially been blurred branded. That's right. That's and, right. <laughs> officially. And I guess, first of all, before putting that nomenclature on you, do you self-identify as a nerd? Uh, yes. And, and always, I have, even before it was like a good... I mean, now it is more championed. It's a positive being, attribute yeah, now. Being yeah. oneself, you know what I yes. mean? There's less of an emphasis on conformity. And so now it feels like a lot of a lot of nerds who once were shunned or had to find ways to fit in are suddenly coming out as nerds, which is great. And so, yeah, that's been true for me. I kind of am riding that wave right now. Right on. And what was that like when you were growing up? 
as as a, a young nerd. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Uh, young nerd. You know what? It was a little complicated. I don't want to say it was not accepted, but it would be that thing that sort of defined you. In my time as an adolescent, it would be like, yo, Aki's this, Aki's that. But the way they were, well, he's like kind of a nerdy, he's a nerdy type, right. you know, and that would be the, the main description of you. Right. And you're a little younger than me, uh-huh. but I remember, and we both grew up kind of in the hood. Yeah. And it's weird because the smart kid commands a certain amount of respect, but also you have the best and worst yeah. of, of, of everything. Yes. You're the whipping boy, yeah. but you still kind of get a little bit of respect because you're bookish and you're smart. Right. Um, and, and you find the right friends who treasure that right. about you, you know, so as a nerd, it's interesting people who are maybe are celebrated as midstream or thought of as sort of normal, but who are strange enough to see value in you. And so you're able to find friendships that way. That's how I found my way in. Like I had right. a lot of friends who liked me despite the nerdiness and were like, you know, he's, we, but he's our homeboy, you know? Right so. on. How did that manifest? What's your nerd origin story? I had no option, man. I mean, I just kind of gravitated towards it. My dad was into Star Trek. And so I just grew up with him watching a lot of Star Trek around and I watched it. And I remember in a lot of different ways, but I think when I was nine or 10, right before, let's see, Jurassic Park probably came out the year before or the year after, I can't remember. So And Jurassic Park was 93. I think it was 93. So I was 10 or something like that. And my dad gave me Jurassic Park to read, which is not a book you should give a 10 year old, honestly. What looking back on it, like, I'm like, wow, I can't believe you did that. Was, was your dad like, there's this movie coming out and it's really popular. So I'm gonna give him a book or was he like, I'm gonna just fuck this little kid's head up. I think he really was trying to see if I could hang. It was almost like a, how nerdy is this kid? Cause I would not watch Star Trek with him. And I think he wanted to see if I could hang. So he gave me that book. I remember one summer and he was like, Hey man, this has dinosaurs in it. And it, it could have gone one of two ways. Either I would have hated him and be like, Oh, this chaos theory doesn't make sense. Oh, but I was just into it, man. The whole thing of the math and the genetics and everything just kind of blew me away. And I just started seeking that out. Wow. Yeah. So it's sort of genetic nerdiness, I guess. It is. Yeah. What would you call it? It's an heirloom nerdiness. <laughs> Hand it down. I love it. I love it. And how did music come into the picture? Music is funny because my whole family is musical. We used to do a lot. We used to sing all the time. And my mother was, I think her minor maybe had been vocal in high school. Oh, wow. She was just into all kinds of music. Both my parents came of age in the 70s. So there was a lot of war, Jimi Hendrix, The Temptation, a lot of Motown, a lot of Philly sound. So I just grew up on a lot of that stuff. And we would sing along to it. It never really occurred to me that that was a main thing to do until I mean the reason I went to tech was from when I was 10 and I read that Jurassic Park and got into science and computers and stuff I started building my own computers and I wanted to be a like a programmer I wanted to be a hacker okay I remember I don't remember when hackers came out must have been around that same time it's probably around I think it was 92 93 yeah so I saw hackers and was like yo I'm gonna be a hacker and so that was the whole driving force to go to tech I knew that you could study computer science as a major and I was like yo I'm going there I read books about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates so this is like true nerd this is the stuff that we friends be like well he's weird man because like he reads comics he watches X-Men 
but he's also reading this Bill Gates autobiography thing, which we don't really understand what that's about. Sure. So that was happening. And then I would be in chorus for an elective. If they were picking an elective, I'd pick one that I could do. I was like, well, we sing around the house. So I could sing in school, no problem. And then uh, we got to tech and I was on my path to become a nerd duke. I was like, I'm computers, <laughs> I'm reading sci-fi. I'm hanging out with the kids that were all black and getting the library pass to go down and do uh, lunch in the library with all the other misfits. And then I tried out for the spring musical and, and got a part as a freshman, not a big part, but a singing part. And it was like the road to becoming cool opened up through that. And suddenly I had friends who did not hang out in the library and did not play Magic the Gathering and, and Dungeons and Dragons. And I was hanging out with cats who were on the football team, but also could sing. And I was in between two worlds and I got seduced by that magical, that musical feeling, that feeling of, of being part of a combo. So that's kind of how it happened. Wow. Yeah. And, and this is as a teenager. So maybe right. a couple of years later than the average kid. Because, you know, the average like seven, eight, nine-year-old, 10-year-old is doing piano lessons or right. violin lessons exactly. or something like that. And the benefit of the high school that we went to, which was unlike most high schools in Brooklyn, yes. is that there was a full band, yep. there was a chorus, exactly. uh, there was theater, Drama, there was all the this stuff. Nine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All this stuff that is not accessible to those of us who live in largely minority neighborhoods mm -hmm. in, in New York City. So there was this whole option open to you. Were your folks like supportive of, of you going into more like a creative arts type thing as opposed to science or computers or whatever? I would say they were gobsmacked long enough for me to sort what of- What happened to our child? That's right. They listed. <laughs> I mean, I have two older brothers and they both went to Rensselaer Politics, went to RPI, Rensselaer oh, Politics wow. Institute. So like one went to, for like, it was ROTC with an engineering sort of focus. And my older brother, who was six years ahead of me, who also went to tech, went up to RPI for chemical engineering, something like that. And I was on the same path. I was like, I'm gonna hold it down on this computer science tip. And then I took this sort of left turn into, well, I think I want to perform. I think I want to sing and dance and I want to learn music way too late for it to be like, well, he's been playing all this, you know, like I had to do a lot of catch up. Right. Kind of caught it. I didn't realize I wanted to do it as my focus until we were applying to colleges. Till I was like 17, end of junior year that I was like, you know what? I don't want to do computers. I want to sing. It was literally that kind of so, feeling. I mean, damn near 11th hour. I mean, the, maybe exactly. 10th hour. Yes, it was late. No one got any kind of war. I didn't know <laughs> until it was happening. And uh, I think my folks were kind of like, okay, okay, okay. We can handle this third kid. You know, they sort of got, have the, figured it out how to be supportive, but also uh, constructive. And so I got a lot of like, we're going to send you, and my brothers went to a technical school. I went to Bard College, which has got like, at the time had to be one of the crunchiest sort of. That's like a granola you know, hippie. Totally. Creative. Totally make your own major kind of like, they did grades, but it was almost like one of those, we don't have grades kind of schools. And so and I, you know. Having a flashback to the interview I did with Julian Villard. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. I think, did he go to Bard College too? Or, I don't or, think Julian went somewhere, but I think he went to LaGuardia. Did he go to LaGuardia? No, he said it was a crunchy granola school. Maybe it was like a high school or something oh, like he that. Went to, he went to like, yeah, we talked about this before. He went to another crunchy school, William and Mary or something like that. He went right. to like another, no real grades kind of 
interdisciplinary, we're going to read a lot of books and figure out who we are kind of school. <laughs> you know wow. What I mean? That's fascinating to me just because I've never experienced anything like that. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> That's culture shock, right? 100%. First of all, coming from Brooklyn to yeah. uh, Brooklyn Tech alone is a culture shock. And yeah. then to go from that into one of those crunchy granola colleges is a culture shock. But you seem like a very sort of adaptable, multi, like really easy to fit in, culturally versatile person. Yeah. I think I knew I wanted to experience something new and I'm grateful to my folks, especially my mother, who I would say, looking back, I now understand that my family was sort of like, they were climbing the, so like my mother went from a scrabble, scrabble hard teacher to becoming a program director to eventually becoming a principal right before I graduated. So she worked her way up the ladder and my father was like, business guy that slowly got promotions and went to different, you know, like they were sort sure. of come up as I was hitting high school. And I appreciate that my mother, because she was in the New York City Department of Education, decided Yo, it's going to be public school. We're not going to take you away from that, that crucial New York experience right. of, of diversity and the, not only are the, the kids diverse, the teachers are diverse and, and very New York. So I got a lot of that experience. And then I think I wanted to try something new. Tech was what, when I went there, maybe almost 6,000 kids. And we were uh, less, we were, we were probably closer to 5,000. Yeah. I don't think, I don't, not sure. I know my class coming in was 1200. So I think we were start of part of that where class was starting to get bigger than a thousand. And, and then Bard was like, 1300 kids all told damn 300 and some odd kids in my class and I was that was the hard part that was the scary part right which for I think a lot of people who may be listening to this that did not grow up in a city environment 1300 yeah. kids may sound like a lot right but my graduating class was 1240 or some exactly. shit like that, that was so the whole 1300 class. is nothing <laughs> it was nothing and the classes were small and we're upstate, you know, middle of nowhere. It's quiet. It gets dark. How did you uh, handle that? How did we handle it? I mean, again, I have to give my, my folks credit. They made us do stuff that at the time I hated. Like, well, no, I loved it. They used to send us to summer camp, but I do remember like high school, you're like, yo, so I'm going to go to summer camp now. Like, come on, man, I'm 14. <laughs> you know, I'm writing letters to my friends in New York. Like what's going on? And they're like, oh, we went to here and then we were here and then we hung out here. And I'm like, oh, we went, you know, snorkeling or whatever. And so I felt like I was missing out on that critical New York adolescent lifestyle. Sure. But uh, at the same time, I wasn't as freaked out. I had friends from the city who were also at Bard who definitely were freaked out every weekend. They're like, I'm going home because it's too dark and quiet and it's all bugs and starlight. I kind of was like, okay, well, listen, we have, we have modern conveniences, even though we're out here in the middle of nowhere. And again, that nerdy, that nerdy introvert thing is, I was sort of relieved to have space, to be able to walk for a while and see nobody, which you never get to experience in New York. So it was a new experience that then I could have, I could just wander around with my head in the clouds thinking about music and mathematics and stuff like that and trying to put things together you know i had a fantasy of what college would be like and it wasn't like that when i got there but i i tried to make it like that that's i appreciate anyone who endeavors to create their own 
universe within the universe. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, you hear that. Yes. Yes. So how did ultimately you end up doing the Lake Street dive thing? Like uh, where, yeah. how did that fortuitous sequence of events happen? That was a mixture of being in the right place at the right time and and being prepared to do something that maybe others would have found a little bit more challenging. So I kind of met Lake Street Dive a few years before they really sort of exploded through mutual friends. And we used to see each other at the same venues, Rockwood Music Hall and stuff like that. And I opened for them at this Rockwood show when they, they were kind of the headliner and they had filled out the room and I was the opener. And I think they just saw me play and sing and thought, okay, that's cool. They didn't have keys in their band. And then three or four years later, when they were thinking of expanding, they asked me if I would jump on the road with them. But I would say before that, it was a very hard scrabble, New York artist existence of doing everything you can to try and mm -hmm. make, make an existence happen here. And I was doing weddings and I was teaching and I was playing gigs and I, all that road warrior stuff. And they basically, they were like, we're in, I don't know, they were in Europe or something. And they first emailed me like, yo, we want you to come out on the road, but we have literally no time to rehearse with you. We're going to fly back home. It's going to be a holiday break. And then we want you to just meet us in Boston, get on the bus and start playing shows the next day. What? And yeah. So they were like, here are like 25 songs. <laughs> and can you just, can you just learn these songs and meet us in Boston? Be ready. And I would say I was fortunate to have had so many gigs like that. But you show up at a wedding and they're like, you need to know these 30 songs the bride and groom have requested. So I had a lot of practice dealing with that. Learn a song only to play it once with no rehearsal, possibly with people you've never met before kind of experience. And I think it helped me sort of handle the anxiety of being added to this group without any on stage. Like your rehearsal is in front of an audience. So there's really no room to, there was no time to ask questions or what about this chord or what do you think about it, it was like we're just going to get on there we're going to sound check and then we're going to say your name and bring you out and you're going to play a show with us holy shit yeah i in a wedding band scenario mm -hmm. i can kind of understand like okay hey you need to learn at last by etta james you got to right. learn whatever always and forever by heatwave whatever mm -hmm. you need to learn <laughs> yep but if you're part of like a regular touring band and they're like, okay, you have to learn our catalog, yes, our set list, mm -hmm. like that's got to be like, oh my goodness, yeah, that's, that's yeah. trial by fire. Exactly. I was willing in my spirit to do it, but the only reason I was capable of doing it was that I had done nightmare gigs where we had to learn 25 songs for one occasion. And I always say this to when people ask me about stress, to me, there's no more stressful gig than the wedding gig, uh, especially if you're doing ceremonies, because that's like one time only, has to be perfect, everyone's listening. You'll ruin this day for everyone there, kind of pressure. And I would say I'll take, get on stage and perform these 25 songs with this band that you've never played with before that has never had a keyboard player on stage with them over that any day, because those were truly stressful gigs. How do you... Because if I were you, if I were in that situation, I would just be like pooping my pants. The wedding gig specifically. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, looking out. And like, I, I'm a, a minister. Like, yeah. I've officiated a bunch of weddings. Yes. And I kind of roll into there like, okay, the pressure's on them. It's not on me. 
Yes, yes. How do you, as someone that's in a wedding band, responsible for whether it's the wedding march or mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. playing the first song at the reception, the father exactly. daughter dance, whatever? Yeah. How do you keep your cool? I would just say that it's a sort of self-selecting skill that you get an opportunity to do it and you can crash and burn if you don't have the tools to do it and you're not doing it with the right people who can kind of guide you. And I had the fortune of working with a band of cats who were a couple decades older than me and kind of showed me the ropes and we're like, hey, don't worry about this, focus on that. Don't be so, can I be stressed out about like, okay, so in the, they said they got to change the music when the bride comes. Like, how do I know when the, because I wasn't at the rehearsal dinner. I don't know how many people are in the wedding party with aunts and uncles. And they'd be like, no, man, you just keep an eye out. And when everybody stands up, that's when you switch the music. You know, things like that made me feel more comfortable about what I had to do. And then the pressure is just that, like you say, it's on them if you're officiating. It's not really on the musician so much unless you screw up. Because you don't want people to notice you if you're right. a musician. Right. You want them to be like, what a beautiful day. And see the couple and think about love and see the family and look <laughs> at the view. You don't want them to be like, man, a keyboard player doesn't know how to play Paco Bell's Cannon. You know, that's <laughs> the last thing you want them thinking. So. Dude, were you always this cool under pressure? I have no idea. You know what? <laughs> this is the thing people say about me I, I i didn't know that if i was i didn't know it until people said hey you're pretty cool under pressure so it's possible i don't remember being i just come from very low-key my family's very unflappable people Un they're under impressed but also unflappable you know what i mean right. so when i first sang on stage and did stuff like that other people's families would be like you were so great and gave gifts and flowers and we're gonna go to applebee's for dinner my folks were like, well, it's pretty good. Anyway, you go do your homework. And is that, you know? I, are, were your parents, I got to ask this question because this actually came up in conversation with some other friends earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, are your parents American? They are, but my dad is first generation uh, Puerto Rican from the Bronx. Okay. In the projects in White, in uh, Throg's Neck. And my mother is from was born and raised in brooklyn but both of her parents came from the south okay from like south carolina so they're both first generation new yorkers and they're not prone to histrionics if that makes sense they're pretty, that makes like, sense. pretty new york uh, yeah i mean yes american yeah there, there is an unflappable now that i'm thinking about it a a, a new york ethos mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's just kind of like okay the house behind me is on fire yep. and they just threw a baby out the window, but it's cool. Right. That, that, you'll see it everywhere. You know, right. that, you know, keep your face, you know, sort of neutral and keep moving. Right. And so I, I learned that if I'm unflappable or cool under pressure, I got that from my folks who just, you know, things were going crazy around in the eighties, you know, Brooklyn, even nineties, Brooklyn, you know, they, Brooklyn they, up until about 2003. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> pretty, pretty chill people. You know, they were like, all right, we'll call us when you get there. You know, latchkey style. We, we had babysitters for a while, but eventually they're just like, when you grow up in New York, I don't know if this is still true. This is a good question. But like, eventually you're just taking the bus and the train to school. Yeah. You're just commuting with adults. Mm -hmm. So your parents are like, 
you know, you're 11 now. You can't take a school bus. You got to get on the D train to get to class. Yeah, and, man. And, you know, that kind of From thing. the time I was 13, I was taking public transportation by myself. And this is before cell phones. Right. So it's not like anybody could be like, oh, you okay? Right, exactly. When, when you got home at 3.30, that's when they were like, oh, yeah, I guess he's yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My mother used to say, well, you didn't call, but no news is good news. Good news, right. You know, so. And again, like you're a couple, you're six or seven years younger than me, but mm-hmm. it was like, I remember coming home from tech on the two train and people would just like pull a gun out on the fucking mm-hmm. subway mm-hmm. and everybody mm-hmm. would duck. And it was another day on the two train. It was just another day in, on the in 1991 train. or whatever it was. And there is an unflappable nature that I think can serve you well in adult life. Yes. If right. you've been through a certain experience in New York City. Right. But also having the tools to process it. It's not right. a, a numbness, but it is a willingness to accept that eventually there's going to be a crisis. Right. If you take the train every day, there's going to be one of these bullshit days. Is gonna some happen. bullshit is going to pop yeah. off. And you can't be like, ah, what do I do? You got to right. be like, okay, now cool. this is what the training was for. Now, yeah. Yeah. when move, you are move walking away down, from the conflicts. Yeah. When you're walking down Fulton Street and the Decepts is behind you and yes. you hear them talking about they're going to rob this kid, and you, yes. just, you just keep walking. Yes, that's the whole thing. You know, me and my nerdy friends uh, walking home from junior high, we got robbed like three, four times. At least yeah. that was just part of your. <laughs> You learn to be like, okay, now I need to clock when somebody is like sort of lurking, you know, when somebody is walking behind you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It makes you aware of your surroundings. You learn. Yeah. yeah. You walk in a group and you know how to avoid, avoid conflict as much as possible. But yeah, that was part of the, the experience. And fortunately I had good sort of good friends and, and I think my folks were very, just very, you know, no drama really. Right. How important is it to be, I mentioned that you are a very, you're sort of chameleonic culturally, I think mm-hmm. in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. How, how has that served you on your life and career? Ooh, yeah. Well, I guess I, I accept that. I don't know. I don't know exactly where this comes from, but I know that if you want to have a successful sort of career as a musician or any kind of career like this, where you're going to be working with a lot of different people as an independent contractor or whatever, you're going to have to move through a lot of different circles of people and different people have sort of different, I don't know if this was hip now, are people still talking about it, but code switching was a big thing we used to talk about, which is not a thing I ever had a name for until a friend of mine at Bard was like, oh, you know about code switching, right? And like broke it down for me. I was like, oh yeah, well, I've been doing that since since there was the hang on the train, there was the hang in the school, there's right. the hang with your parents and your parents' friends or your friends' parents, all these things that you learn to do just moving through different circles. And I sort of just try to use that in my my everyday life to, to sort of see like, okay, well, how, what are these people about? And can I get down with this? And then the other thing is, if it's something that I'm like, this is not not for me, I'll walk away from it as much as I can avoid situations where I'm like, this is not at all a group of people I want to associate with. I try to make that choice early on. How did you cultivate the sensibility to be able to do that? Wow. I don't know, man. I think, hmm, that's a great question. I think that part of it is 
my, what I call the introvert superpower, which I've seen now people are using this, but I, I feel like I made it up about five, six years ago. Everybody was talking about FOMO, you know what I mean? Fear mm -hmm. of missing out. I, I always talked about JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. And so I was like, hey man, if I don't get invited to this party or I'm not part of this hang, it's not like my life's over. I'll be happy to go home and watch Star Trek. So to a certain extent, I'm happy to to miss out. I'm actually overjoyed to turn down invitations. Even uh, as a teenager, were you even, like that? Yeah, even as a teenager. Wow. Yeah. Also, nerd. This is like a weird thing, but you know how you, when you're a nerd, you have your squad because you're not popular. So you have your crew of your five tight friends, and one of them wears spectacles and is into aeronautics, and the other one was really good at video game codes and stuff like that. And y'all just hang tough. So we didn't get invited to the parties in the first place. There were sleepovers at each other's houses until we started to one. I remember one friend of mine got on the football team and he became like that, that dude. Oh, and, uh, wow. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, this guy, he's got cool friends now. And then I, you know, got into the musical and I started to have, you know, cool friends and whatnot. But we still, we were so, we had gone to junior high together and, and we were like, it was, it was still, we knew that we had to stick together no matter what the sort of like suddenly the gatekeepers were like, oh, you're cool. You can come to this party. You can be in this click. You know, we were still like, we're going to get our, our slam poetry and fantasy novel time, you know, and we're going to, we're going to make sure to, to curate our friendship. So part of it is that I think the willingness so to walk mature. away. I, I, yeah. Is it, I mean, it sounds mature I feel now. I like it is because <laughs> I think back to when I was younger and there was this desire to, to, to fit in. Even if you had your crew of quote unquote misfits, yeah. there was still the desire to be accepted. Yes. And now I'm kind of like, if you like me, you like me. If you don't, fuck you. Yes. But I, I wish I'd have had that attitude then. Right. It would have saved me a lot of, of, of anxiety oh, yeah. and stress. I also think I had my older brother who also went to tech six years older than me was a on the basketball team also can sing. He was like, no one's going to be cooler than that dude. Right. right. Uh, and he went to the same junior high and high school as me. So I would come through and people would be like, Oh, your brother was blah, blah, blah. I remember your brother. He's so cool. So I knew I had to find my own lane. <laughs> right. If that right. makes sense. Cause you had and, a standard that was already set for yeah. you. They were like, oh, your brother was, was all city, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I'd be like, well, you know, I'm I'm pretty good with, with trigonometry. Yes, <laughs> you know, that's kind of my talent. That's what I do. But there's still a confidence in that, that I, I as a teenager, I just feel like I, I wish that oh. that I had that. And you, you would see it. I, I would see it in some kids who were just like, yeah, this is the shit I know. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to make fun of me for it, so be it. Right. That's like a, a, yeah. a, a sense of self that's, that's so important, I think, for, for young people to have. Yeah. I, I do wonder, I'm sure it's something, the older I get and the more I look back, I'm sure it's something unseen from my parents or something like that, that kept me strong but it's not something that I'd be able to identify. It was such a soft touch, whatever it was, that I, you know, I just thought I was being, I was the iconoclast that was doing his own cool thing. And I probably didn't realize how much, I mean, you know, I remember my dad giving me Jurassic Park. I don't know what that was about, 
but that definitely put me on a path where I was like, you couldn't tell me about science fiction. I know all about science fiction, you know, and I wasn't about to be ashamed of that, uh, even if it wasn't the the cool thing. I just kind of accepted uh, that was going to be the, you know, maybe it's a third child thing too. I don't know. <laughs> as young like, as you had, you had two predecessors. Two predecessors. I have one younger sister. And so she okay. was like the apple of everybody's eyes. So I, I had a little bit of this, uh, like, second middle child syndrome like just be cool with what whatever's going on it's not gonna be about you uh so just kind of accept it that said obviously i went into a career where i step on stage and it is all about me so i don't know there's some complex stuff going on (laughs) when you roll out on stage with lake street dive Mm -hmm. is it like is that same confidence still there? Like, yeah, I'm gonna go out there and fuck these people up. <laughs> or, or does it feel like when you look out on stage, are you like, wow, that's a lot of people. What, what is what is your mind? I definitely, you know what? I wish that I had the, the confidence. I was like, yo, I'm about to just wreck this place. I never think that. In fact, I do have like a, sort of an abiding sort of fantastical fear that that like one day I'll I'll walk out on stage. It's almost like the thing where you're, t- you're giving a speech with no clothes on. <laughs> like my voice will be gone, or I won't remember how to play the instrument. I'm gonna play some horrible notes. Everyone's gonna boo and kick me off. So almost every day that I have a performance, that thought, that little fantasy runs through my head. I won't say I'm confident, like like you were describing, but I have never gotten nervous. I can remember that from the earliest church plays where kids would be like i'm so nervous and the you see the parents of the teachers sort of like the kids are crying because they're afraid to go on stage i never had that i was always like i'm ready to get on stage man i'm ready wow ready to do it so that's kind of my approach i'm ready to get on stage i have to have that little fantasy every time that like everything's gonna go wrong because it it's like a talisman that that won't happen right you know so right yeah you know, before you were a part of the band, I saw Lake Street Dive at Boston Calling. I want to say it was like eight years ago, maybe wow. seven, eight mm-hmm. years ago at this point. And I do, I enjoy Lake Street Dive's music. I have diverse tastes musically. I mean, you have one of the most diverse tastes I've ever oh. witnessed in a human being. Do you ever feel any like pushback because you're a brother and, and Lake Street Dive is sort of on the folky, bluegrassy country-ish poppy sort of yeah outside the spectrum that's like another one of my walking fantasies is that i'll walk out on stage it'll be crickets because people will be like who's this cat <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> who does he feel if anything i would say actually i've had the opposite experience which is sometimes in venues like that i'll look out into the crowd that is you know, generally, it's not necessarily so many people of color. Sure. But when I make eye contact with those people of color, I feel a, a, a strong bond that I don't know. How to, I mean, I don't know if it's like representation or if it's just like, yo, it's just good to, you know, when the same thing at, at Bard, Bard was like, talk about a lack of, of color. Sure. Bard, I think there were seven black men in my class. So like of of, of 316 kids in in the freshman year. So it was very few black males. And if anything was culture shock, that was probably the most culture shock. Sure. I'd never, I'd never experienced that little, I just had never experienced that. So I've never gotten any, I've never felt any pushback. Maybe I've been shielded from it, 
I've definitely felt accepted. Part of that could be the code switching that I think I do without even necessarily considering it. And a part of it, I think, is that there are people of color in those audiences. And I, I do think they're like, yo, I like folky stuff too. With a little, give me, I came up on soul. I have that language in within my family and I want to hear that in this in this setting in Lake Street Dive. So I hope I'm bringing something like that to the band as opposed to it seeming like I'm I'm leaving that behind sure. to, to assimilate. So that's kind of the goal there. I respect that. I respect and appreciate that. I, I do think that sometimes the Black experience is minimized, particularly in musical situations where it's yeah. like, oh, you know, this person likes rock and roll. This person likes country. This person likes Americana or folk. Like, mm-hmm. that's weird when it shouldn't be weird at all because it's music that we created. Exactly. Exactly. There's definitely... There's a connection there and uh, you know i just try to be genuine and i i just like riding the train every day there will come a time i'm sure where i run into some sort of obstacle and i expect that to happen i don't think you can grow up in america as a black person and unless you are insanely lucky avoid conflicts based on race it is uh, it, I, I would quarter. say i would say it is virtually impossible i would agree So if anything, I think uh, at least within most musical circles that I've run in, there is an understanding of the the role that African-American culture and people, figures have played in the creation of whatever music, be that like hip hop, R&B or bluegrass and country and stuff like that. I think that's something that makes me gravitate towards people as musicians that I want to work with as opposed to people who try to excise that right. from the history of their music. Right. You know, that's that to be like that is to be uh, delusional, honestly. So, but how many people are actually delusional? Like it's, it's true. I mean, you know, this is something that even the slowest of us have hopefully learned in the last five years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where it's like people will mentally gymnastic themselves into whatever, makes them feel good even if it's so obviously not reality or the truth right yeah it's just impossible to not meet that there's people like that everywhere everywhere right uh, and uh I, I think both my parents were like i said children of the of the seven, came of age in the 70s so they grew up in the 60s needless to say they're both fairly radicalized uh, and still very radicalized by the time i came along and so i was indoctrinated with radical radical thoughts early on right on some some mandatory read my parents called it the the hidden curriculum <laughs> so there was this extra reading we had to do and outside what was- of class you know roots we had to read uh, like james baldwin zoranil hurst and these are books that my folks had in the front room in our house was like a little library there was a sci-fi section with all the star trek books right my mother had like a mystery section because she loved mystery stuff. And then there was a huge swath of the wall that was like, you know, Langston Hughes, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And and those books were mandatory. Like, you got to at least check these out. Right, so and you so, were straight up involved in Black academia. You yes. Know? But it was like low key because, again, my mother was in the BOE. I think she knew these are the things that you'll never experience in, in public school. No matter how much there is a diverse group of students around you're still going to get this very sort of like uh, for lack of a better word whitewashed version of history and so all of my siblings and I were forced to by my parents 
you know, deal with that. And I remember my dad specifically once telling me like, you got to put in this paper, what your teacher wants to read in this paper, but you have to know for yourself what the truth of this is. And I so, love that. And yeah. I, I love that. It's so like insinuative and not like overt, like you're not yeah. getting, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, I, I have a lot of respect for that. That it trained me to be aware that education is critical and the information is out there, but it's not necessarily given to you. And so when I see that someone is uneducated on the actual history of American music, I'm not surprised because the only reason I knew anything different is because of my, you know, my parents were, got their, you know, 1960s, 1970s on and had sort of like an academia thing. And then we're like, we're, and we're going to pass on this, this sort of at the time, crazy radical thinking, which now I think is less, significantly the, less, yeah, yeah, significantly yeah. less of a, of like a stigma attached to the idea of like, well, well, let's reread this history in and in terms of indigenous peoples or in terms of the African slave experience, right. as opposed to, it's just a, uh, you know, fifty guys in Philadelphia sign a document, win a war, and right. the rest is history. You know what I'm saying? So right, right, and and sort of. Related but not related, mm. I, I want to talk about your aesthetic because, like, okay. you're dressed down right now because it's hot. Because we're it's chilling, hot and yes. yeah, it's also like 148 degrees <laughs> in New York City right now. But you have a very unique stylistic uh-huh. aesthetic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I want to know how that came about. Okay, I can tell you, it was gradual because high school, I so I had my ways of acting out. I acted out with. I was the first male person in my family to get locks. Okay. Like my mother had locks, sister got locks. You know, I, my oldest brother was a Marine, so he was just like, you know, straight tight. Yeah. You know, and at the time, you know, fades and and that was the look. The Caesar, it, was, it definitely wasn't. Occasionally, you'd see some some somebody Eric Benet would have locks. Or something it was like it was it was unique. It was unique. Super unique. Yeah. Definitely unique for the the nearsighted like chubby nerd to be rocking locks but i was like you know what i want to grow my hair out so i started with that expression i you know i i wore the the baggy jeans of the era but i always had like a thing for bright colors and i just kind of followed that for a while until there was also like i was i had to dress formally because we would go to sunday school we went to church okay so All right. my grandfather would take us every spring to the tailor, you know, and he'd make you get all measured and you had to get socks and you had to get pants and you had to get oh, shirt damn. and a couple ties and shoes. And I had to bring those home. And those were my Sunday clothes. You know what I mean? And I used to oh, man, hate putting those on. It was just like, you know, pulling teeth to get me to wear like oh, a suit and the pants and everything. But when I went away to Bard, this is an interesting thing about Bard is that I feel like reactionarily everyone there was dressed alternatively like a not mainstream everyone had like crazy hair colors and long hairdos and or short hairdos and wore bright colors that didn't match or clothes that were like you know ragged and stuff and i found that i once i had the total freedom no parents around to dress whatever where however i wanted to i went through a period of like yes i have i even probably i have a hat here from college that i just found recently I poured bleach all over it and I just wore it. I thought it was a good look. I don't know. So okay. it was like stained and stuff. I don't know. You know, I just kind of was trying to find myself. Like tie-dyed uh, or? No, not tie-dyed. Like, uh, 
I know this is a an audio. It's a, right, it's a visual. This okay. is this it is, is kind of like tie dyed a little bit. This is bit. the college hat. I just poured bleach on it. All right. I, I was like, I like to ruin things and then wear them. All right. Uh, you know, because it looked messy, and I and I wanted to be the opposite of sort of straight laced. But then I came to you know, once you start to fully grow into yourself, I realized that the as much as they say the clothes define the man. That old saying. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I I kind of like a spiffy bow tie and a crisp shirt. And I can match that with like big chunky sneakers and whatever. My look can just be what I find interesting. And and then, you know, like I said, like that nerdy thing is kind of cool now, so to speak. Right. So now it's not so much that you have to look a very particular, you could, as long as you have an original look, people can kind of accept how you look. And so I'm just kind of, I'm coasting on that, that if I see a pair of yellow glasses, I'll be like, man, I love those yellow glasses. I'll put those on, I'm wearing a bow tie. And, and, you know, big yellow sneakers or something like that. That's just the look that I, that I have. But yeah, that took a while. After college, my pants got, you know, they expanded. They got baggier and baggier as pants did in the 90s, you know, and I kind of went along with that trend <laughs> until they were ridiculous. Yeah, and, I uh, mean, until you were wearing like three waist <laughs> sizes too big to be That was the issue, yeah. And the yeah. belt cinched up, you know, yeah. and it was just... I don't know, man. We were all we were all addicted to baggy pants for a decade. What can I mean, say? it was all just like, and this is was my perspective. It was like no one wore tight pants. If you wore tight pants, you know, it was too much. Like it was yes. too effeminate. Exactly. That was that was the that was the perception. Although I, that was the thing is, I never even got to try tight pants. Right. And no, <laughs> I mean, likewise, like you can't. You know. Right. Uh, yeah. Right away, you can't do it. And then, like somewhere in the early two thousands mid-2000s like the hipsters came around uh-huh. and they were wearing like skinny jeans and shit like that but mm. that was still not really getting play in the community yes and yes. then all of a sudden it was like oh shit i'm a grown-up i should probably wear fitted clothes exactly yeah want something <laughs> that doesn't have a bunch of extra fabric flapping around right. my, you know and then suddenly we're like oh well you know when you get something that actually fits it looks nice right it looks nice it feels nice yes. now you're cutting a figure and then you right. go okay well let me get some more pants like this let me get a couple right. more jackets i know what my body looks like now this yeah, is a very yeah, interesting yeah. development i'm not trying to <laughs> i'm not trying to hide as like a generic reiteration of of whatever is quote unquote cool right. anymore yeah and then uh the rest is history i mean it's something I still come to grips with. I do feel sometimes I'll, if I think, if I am having a self-conscious moment, I'll be like, wow. Like it, it is, it is, it is, it is. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not, no one in my family is this hairy, you know, everyone else is still a little bit more clean cut, but, but no one else, you know, is, is rocking a bow tie every day. So I feel like on balance, you know what I mean? I think it doesn't, the bow tie doesn't look crazy formal because everything else is a little bit, I don't know. I'm not sure. I've, I've I mean, tried to come just, up with it. You got to rock with what you feel comfortable with. Exactly. I, I, you know, I'm a firm believer in kind of creating your own aesthetic, which yeah. again, like got me into trouble 20 years ago, 25 yes. years ago. Yes. But yes. in 2021, it's kind of like, okay, everybody is allowed to look like who they want to look like. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I almost feel myself conforming more now than I did then. Because it's like, man, I just want to throw in a t-shirt and shorts and be comfortable. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Like, whereas yeah. 10 years ago, it was like, okay, I'm going to wear like a 
a pink shirt. I'm going to make a, exactly. I'm making right. a, a statement tonight. Right. Exactly. Know? Exactly. And you're like, I can't, I'm too tired to make that kind of statement. Man. It's too hot. Much. It's too hot to make that statement. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm trying to think of, of a good uh, a wrap up question because we've been mm. kind of all over the place here. Well, that's, that's, that's definitely my calling card. I, and I love it. Place. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That that's, that is, that is kind of my aesthetic just kind of pulled from everywhere. Right. What is, I might roll with an old question here. Hit me. Like, yeah. what is what is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Damn. Best piece of advice. Best piece of advice. I've had I've gotten a lot of good advice over the years. I don't always remember all of it. And I have a follow-up question, but answer that okay. question first. I would say. I would say the best piece of advice. I got, I've gotten is, well, I was told this is kind of controversial. I know my, Let's go. my parents disagreed with it at the time. It's not crazy controversial, but it's just that when I was in college and I was like a junior and I was, I was trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to do music, but I was also thinking I need to do something responsible. My folks were kind of like, are you going to teach? Are you going to, what's your, what's your, how you gonna make money? How you gonna live? And I was like, so I, I was talking to one of my professors who's a composer, this guy named Kyle Gann. And he was like, I was telling him I need something. I need, sh should I do this, you know, MAT program after this? Or do I need to get a, a certificate in that? And he basically told me, you know, if you spend all your time looking for something to fall back on, you will fall back on. And it is better to trust yourself, do what you are truly, uh, you know, passionate about and fail than to try to follow it in half measures, always being cautious to, to not do it completely. I know that my, I never told my folks that he told me that, you know, cause that's not, that's just not conventional advice, right. especially in like a black family where it's like, you will go to college. Like the, these, for the culture, you must do It this. is non-negotiable. You it's do non-negotiable, Doug. All black people, not yes. just, yes. Yes, so you're, you're doing this exactly for the ancestor. So I, it, I decided actually to go with what Kyle said, but I, the addendum to it that I made was that if I had, I had to do music to the utmost in order not to fail. And that if I took half measures, if I tried to find a safe way to do it, I would eventually go the more comfortable route, the, the path of least resistance. So I had to eliminate any easier path <laughs> right. and just, you know, get, get out of school, come back to New York and be starving, you know, in order to force myself to be successful. I, 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 I still think I could have done it. I could have been more moderate, but, but that was, I think, if I had not had that advice, I don't know where I'd be today because I think I would have gone for I would have I would have I would have checked it out. I think that's good advice. Yeah. So the follow-up question is what would if late 30s or mid 30s Aki Burmese mm -hmm. was to go back in time and visit 15-year-old Aki Ooh, Burmese, boy. what would you tell him? Wow. You know, I, I'm getting to the age where I think about this. Like, what, what would I say to myself? I also, I would say before I tell, I would know that I probably wouldn't listen. That's the issue. That's what makes it so frustrating. 
Because I know that even if I came back and told me, I just did the, I just did the last 20 years and I just want to let you know this could help you out. I still don't, I think I was so contrarian. Not even if you like grabbed teenage Aki by like the collar and was like, yo, listen to this shit or I'm going to fuck you up. Maybe, (laughs) maybe, or, you know, I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then not, I'd be like, motherfucker doesn't know you. I'm not going to be him. But I would, I mean, it would be, I have to say it would just be, man, you just reminded me of a second grade piece of advice that I got, but it would be to, to, I don't don't know that I really have great advice for myself. I would say, I would tell myself, it's not going to be easy and you, you will make mistakes and there's no way. I mean, that would be a depressing thing to tell yourself. (laughs) Like, Hey man, you're, you're making the right choice. And you're right. still, it's still going to fuck you up. Right. Like it's not just because you, I think you're doing the right thing. Doesn't mean you're not going to uh, suffer intensely. Right. But uh, I would, I would, that's what I would say to a young me. The suffering is part of the journey. And uh, I don't know. I also would say, enjoy being young and limber and spry as much fuck as yes. possible. And, and yeah. And, <laughs> Despite and, and, best efforts, it goes just, away. Yeah, it goes away. I'd be like, you know, thank your parents every day for feeding you because you one day you'll be you'll be hungry. Yeah. And you're going to be like, man, if only I could just go to someone else's refrigerator and pull out what I wanted for free, for free. Yep. For free. Man, what a liberating feeling that would have been if I was aware of it at the time retrospectively. But I'm I'm very glad of the scars that I carry. So I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with the advice that I got and and the mistakes that i made and and all that stuff so i'm left thinking a lot of different things after speaking to aki burmese uh one is i'm i'm sort of stunned by the level of confidence in himself that he had at such a young age uh he's a fairly unique fella and the sci-fi nerd doesn't as we spoke about uh during the the course of the episode sci-fi nerd doesn't really get a lot of play in the hood so you're putting yourself out there when you are truly yourself. You're, you're putting yourself out there in a way that will potentially get you exposed to a lot of bullying and a lot of criticism. And I love the fact that he is so secure in himself, was, and uh, still is apparently, that he's, he was able to sort of navigate all those difficult teenage and young adult traumas with identity. And also that he's able to kind of go out on stage and rock it now without feeling unconfident or feeling afraid or anything like that so a testament to uh to his self-esteem and his being raised uh in in a way that is uh really good and um much appreciation to aggie for taking the time to uh sit with me and uh, have a conversation if you want to know more about Mr. Vermees, you can follow him online, Aki Vermees, A-K-I-E-B-E-R-M-I-S-S, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, you can find Lake Street Dive on all social media platforms at Lake Street Dive. And make sure you catch them on tour because they're really, really, really good. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, 
Twitter, TizMikeJoseph, or you can email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Always willing to hear constructive criticism, thoughts, ideas, real, realizations, and if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest, I will take recommendations from now until the end of time, so please feel free to reach out to me. I want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show. Uh, Calvin Williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. Jacob Block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.